Welcome to Carceral Studies Conversation. This is a podcast series that seeks to understand and illuminate the carceral state and all of its manifestations and allow us to both understand and then deconstruct these complex systems that structure our society as a way to pursue liberation and pursue justice. I am Alex. I'm recording from the University of Oklahoma, which is on the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita and affiliated tribes, and was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations. My guest today, uh, Dr. J. James, is recording on the ancestral Lenape homelands in New York City. And our guest is a professor of social work at New York University. His research and experiences leads him to be a pragmatically idealistic and hopeful humanitarian committed to the evolution of self, social justice, and critical pedagogy. He is the director of the Evolving Justice Initiative, an educational initiative to build community and explore justice in action, which we'll hear a little bit more about today. Thank you so much for being in conversation today, Professor James. Hey, thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm actually in Philadelphia, and I, I don't know, you know, the uh, what captured land this is, but to also acknowledge that, you know, like Philadelphia, as much of the United States, as much of the world is captured land. So, you know, much love to the Aborigine people who existed here, whose histories have been, you know, whitewashed in white supremacy. Absolutely. Um, th- thanks for correcting me and, no and making that statement because it's important, especially as we're talking about systems of colonization and systems of impression, um, oppression. It's important to recognize that. So I want to start off um, in your research, you've called mass incarceration a pandemic. Can you yeah. explain uh, how mass incarceration is a pandemic? Well, I mean, so a pandemic is something that, you know, similar to uh, COVID-19, right? It's a pandemic. It, it impacts people on a global level. So, you know, to even talk about mass incarceration, I think the first thing I should say that the term is a euphemism. Uh, it's, it's really if we look at the mechanisms that drove uh, slavery, they're the same mechanisms that drive what we call mass incarceration. Specifically, you go back, you look at the 13th Amendment. Um, you know, there's a lot of evidence there that shows, you know, this the end of slavery, but the transition of uh, the prison industrial labor. You saw convict leasing system. You saw black codes. You saw ideologies that substantiated criminality. And today we have, you know, more uh, black men incarcerated than were enslaved in 1850. Um, but this is not only an American thing. I think if you look at most of the countries in the diaspora, um, people of color are similarly impacted uh, disproportionately uh, via carceral systems. So, you know, it's like it's a framework and a model that has been utilized throughout the world to continue the historical oppression of people of color. Yeah, I, I appreciate you putting that way and tracing that historical lens. Um, and some some people might posit mass incarceration as like a backlash to the civil rights movement, but it sounds like you're putting it um, in this longer continued strain of oppression and of exploitation of labor. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can almost see two waves, right? And maybe we're going into the third wave if we're not careful. But um, in terms of the level of deportation, in terms of the level of 
uh, electronic monitoring that is taking place, right? But maybe the first wave comes in, you know, right post uh, the, uh, you know, the 13th Amendment in the form of black codes, etc. You fast forward 100 years, as you said, post-civil rights, we started to see like new black codes, uh, the war on drugs, stop and frisk, mandatory minimums, etc., so, you know, it's like we've seen like waves of this, right? And, and we've seen both of them. Interestingly enough, you bring up the civil rights uh, movement. The civil rights movement is 100 years after, you know, Reconstruction, you know, a period again where uh, America was supposed to, you know, pause and, and take note of the damage that it's historically done to people of color in this, uh, in the United States and do something differently. Yet that doesn't happen. And 100 years later, you know, the fight and struggle insists. And, you know, fast forward to where we're at right now, right? And it's like the fight and the struggle continues. So I think we have seen, you know, various aspects of mass incarceration. And like, not, let's not even call it mass incarceration. It's like neo-slavery, hyper-incarceration, whatever we want to call it, predominantly, um, you know, focusing on, you know, men of color in the United States and, and seeing women of color as the fastest growing prison population but also seeing carceral systems as a way of uh, legitimize our dehumanizing people, right? Because once the uh, term of criminal is affixed to you, your humanity doesn't really matter anymore. And we're seeing that, you know, with the um, wave of police killings that are taking place in the United States, as soon as someone is purported to have a quote unquote criminal background, it means that their humanity is now somehow questioned. Yeah, yeah, great point about the dehumanization and that it's it's more than just imprisonment, that it's this larger system um, that includes stigmatization, over-policing, surveillance um, that slowly or quickly erodes a person's legitimacy to be in the world. Yeah. And and as such, I mean, you we focused so far on the U.S. and these systems, but you mentioned that this is a global phenomenon in Africa and the Caribbean. Um, People of color are disproportionately surveilled, incarcerated, um, exploited. Um, how is this pandemic or this neo-slavery a global phenomenon? How is it a global phenomenon? Yeah, like what, do, what, do, what, what? How would you frame it as a global phenomenon? Well, I think it's again, it's the same framework, right? I think uh, one of the things that we don't talk about is that, like, you know, racial injustice isn't just people didn't just. It's not happening happenstance, right? Like racial injustice is very much predicated on capitalism and, and capitalism is very much predicated on having an exploited class. So, you know, if you can, again, you know, first, I, I think you look at the genesis, uh, you look in at, there's a really good word that I like, it's called Sankofa and it's a West African um, proverb and it usually has the bird like turning around, looking back and it says, to understand where you're going, you have to understand where you're from. So I feel, you know, too often we have these conversations too soon, you know, from surface level. I think we have to understand there's a framework that I um, I learned a few years ago, and I think it's incredibly important to this conversation. Um, utilizing a historical perspective, right, is, is really critical, but then also understanding the mechanisms of oppression. So the four eyes looking at the ideologies. So initially, you know, it was okay for us to just say Blacks were slaves lazy and and you know they they were like not as smart and then as that became like played out you know it's like you had to create another mechanism to justify their exploitation and to maybe connect it to again right like um there's an analogy i like to use 
uh, slavery was the engine that like built America. So to and and much of the world, right? Much of the world, much of the the quote unquote um, G eight. You know, these are all countries that are like you know their wealth is is a byproduct of you know colonialization and 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 the exploitation of countries of color, right? So when you move into uh, you know when you take an engine out of a car, you gotta and you want it to continue to go, you need to put another engine. So slavery was once the engine that built these countries. Now you're starting to see um, the ideologies have shifted, right? And the ideologies that like justify, um, you know, justify this new mechanism of exploitation is often tied to, you know, carceral systems, right? And again, it's that dehumanization. So if you look at most of the people who have been, um, you know, who are vestiges of the legacy of slavery, they're also the people who predominantly make up carceral systems, again, not only in America, but throughout the world. So it's like you have a blueprint, you have a formula that's tried and true, right, that you that you're essentially you've um, exported. Um, so I'm from Jamaica. And similarly, so maybe it's not, you know, you don't see the carceral state in the same maybe like racial uh, way that you see in the United States, but you see it according to class, right? The, the folks who are, again, uh, make up the majority of people in prisons are the people that are permanently um, have been disenfranchised within the systems and the communities. And and you can see that framework like happening throughout the world, right? And it's once someone is identified as a quote unquote criminal, our, um, our empathy is eroded uh, towards their plight. That's really interesting. Um, and I, I want to follow up on a few things. I mean, I, lo- I like that you put that in perspective, this, this global exportation of racial capitalism, that capitalism requires these hierarchies and these divisions between people, which are oftentimes um, predicated on race and racial differences or perceived racial differences um, and create these um, permanent inequities or permanent injustices. And I want to, I want to follow up with that with, as a social worker, you've studied um, the clinical impact of mass incarceration or neo-slavery, to use your term. Um, so what what is the clinical impact and how does yeah. how does that impact or that trauma extend beyond imprisonment to inform these cycles of reentry and re- recidivism? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I'll share I'll share a little bit of how I even came to the work. Uh, so at 18 years old. Uh, 1994, I was arrested and charged under the Rockefeller drug laws. I had never been arrested before. Um, you know, I was arrested on a series of conspiracy charges. Uh, at arraignment, I was offered 40 years to life, 18 years old. Um, but yeah, this wasn't just my story, right? This was, you know, the, the height of what we would call like mass incarceration. You think about 1994, you think about, you know, like Wu-Tang clans, 40 of us in the back of a bus, life is a shorty, shouldn't be so rough, you know? Uh, everyone, right? Tupac's their mama, um, you know, like everyone was talking about like what was happening. So for me, you know, I, I was also one of the people that was experiencing these systems and I would ultimately be sentenced to seven years to life at 18 years old, you know, and the judge told me that he was doing me a favor. So after having this experience, you know, I, I naturally knew what the system was and, and I really left wanting to destroy it, knowing the impact. Yet I'd never considered, you know, like what you said, I the impact was always so in your face, right? What do you mean? What's the impact? The impact is, you know, millions of people incarcerated. The impact is 
millions of people disenfranchised. The impact is, you know, children being separated from their parents, you know, parents being separated, you know, so it, it was always like, yeah, that's the impact. Then um, I was finishing years later, years removed from this situation or not, you know, I'm finishing uh, my doctorate now and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm done. I've just really mapped you know, like the history of prisons in the United States. Um, then I, I kind of tied in, you know, like the lineage of mass incarceration through the 13th Amendment. So I'm like, I'm good, you know, like 200 and some pages, I'm good. And then so I, I bring to my dissertation chair and he says to me, he says, but what's what's the clinical impact, you know? And I was like, no, he didn't say what's the clinical impact. He first said, what's the impact? And I was like, what do you mean? I just showed you what the impact is. And then he pushed me, he says, you know, no, how are people impacted, um, you know, clinically? And that's when I really began to like pause and think about this. And I began to look into like trauma, right? And and to be like, oh my God, oppression is trauma. You know, um, we can't have this conversation without talking about trauma. And then one of the things that immediately struck me was that the the even the clinical understanding of trauma that we had told you that, you know, it was post an experience. So most of the people that we were talking about was PTSD. And it told you that the trauma had an impact. It had an impact on your brain. It had an impact on your biology. It literally, you know, it, it created immense, um, immense harm, you know, for people who experienced trauma. Yet, you know, there wasn't an analysis of a trauma that was never post. You know, there, there wasn't an analysis of a trauma that was 400 years old, that was 500 years old. You know, there, there is no analysis of that. So as I began to, you know, like really think about that and think about the impact of trauma, I felt like that conversation needed to be synonymous as it was as important as, you know, any conversation around liberation. So it's, you know, I, I don't ever think we're able to really quantify the impact of this trauma, right? Like we, I mean, we can quantify it through, you know, like uh, how many people are locked up or, you know, dollars lost, but this is something that is so beyond, you know, like generations have felt the impact of slavery. Generations will feel the impact of mass incarceration unless we really begin to heal. So, I mean, it, it's an incredible question that really deserves a lot of attention. But, you know, I think we'd all be naive to say that we know the impact. We know there is an impact, but I, I don't think no one can quantify what the impact is. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting because that makes me think of some theorists like Ruthie Gilmore who have defined racism as these systems or policies that lead to premature death. Um, yeah. with death being what's quantifiable in the end. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like you're sort of pushing back on that saying, Yes, there's premature death, but also you need to you need to recognize the um, conditions, the harms that are experienced in life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, right, I think there's nothing that could be separated from, you know, from from trauma, right? Like there is uh, you look at, you know, a child growing up, there's this really amazing research called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And it looked at just, you know, as just disruption in, in a family ecosystem in any way can have a lifelong impact. When you think about most people of color in the United States, you know, ACEs is, is what they've lived under, right? They've lived under ACEs. Um, you know, the family structures are compromised. Uh, 
you know, we don't even, even when we think about harm, right? Harm is often conceptualized as, you know, a, a physical thing, right? Like someone is physically harmed. But, you know, imagine living in a world where whiteness has always been synonymous with good and darkness has always been synonymous with bad. And, and seeing that play out on every level of your existence, seeing that play out when you go to school, all the stories that you're told, see that played out in all the movies that you watch, who are all the heroes, you know, who are all the villains. And then and think about the internalization of that, right? Then you add like layers of poverty to that, especially folks who are feeling the brunt of this a little bit more Then you know, like how does that then impact their day to day? Um, and that's why I think even when you look at communities where, you know, violence is, is so, you know, like, you know, inner, whatever we want to call it, like violence is so high disproportionately to other neighborhoods. Like we cannot think about the levels of trauma that they've experienced, you know, um, the le levels of policing. And, and that is a violent experience, right? Poverty is a violent experience. Hopelessness is a violent experience. So it's just, you know, we have to have a more intersectional analysis. And that's one of the things, even when we talk about, you know, like, why have we never ever thought about the trauma of oppressed people? Because, you know, neo-capitalism, neo neo-colonialism tells you that, like, they're autonomous agents. We're all autonomous agents. Nothing is happening in the collective, right? Meritocracy to each your own, which is bullshit. <laughs> so it's like, till we are able to really you know, have these conversations in ways that are like really holistic. I love, um, you know, maybe my cheap Audre Lorde plug, but there are no single issue issues, right? So till we're like really, you know, utilizing an intersectional analysis to really think about all these things, not only in analyzing the harm, but analyzing what our response is going to be, it's going to feel like we're continually stuck in this cycle. Yeah, great point. Um, it's interesting that you're sort of expanding this definition of violence, where it's very much intersectional. It's both material, it's psychological, and it's it's intergenerational. Um, it's, it doesn't end with an individual. It's community-based. But let's turn to, as you, as you alluded to, how do we solve this problem? What is liberation? What does justice look like? Um, so I guess I'll, I'll leave it broadly with that, what do you see as the, the pivot towards justice? Yeah, I mean, so I think one of the first things in, in everything, right, there needs to be awareness, you know, not everything that is faced can be changed, but not nothing can be changed till it's faced, you know, James Baldwin, shameless plug. Um, but just again, like even none of these things are like, we're all, everything, all these arguments that we're based on have been established by ancestors already, you know, like, um, you know, Baldwin, Bell Hooks, you go further back, they've all done a really good job of laying out, you know, what the problem is and what some of the potential solutions can be. So I, I feel that awareness is critical. I think that we all have to create spaces. I love the, um, the term like brave space, you know, spaces that are, you know, really dedicated to liberatory. Um, you know, really even rethinking our educational paradigms and, and really a lot of us being more comfortable with um, the tension that is required to seek truth, um, you know, created more alignment to truth than being right or wrong. And, and so much of that really comes with, you know, I, I think those things are contingent on our own healing, because if we're in constant states of trauma, our ability to think is impacted. Our ability to act is impacted. So 
for people who don't see these things as synonymous, they're often the folks who are like burnt out. They're often the folks who are like, you know, probably not shouldn't be at the forefront of these movements. Right. And, and I think it's really critical that we are creating awareness. I think it's really critical that we are like doing the healing necessary for us to show up in ways that are critical, ways that are actually assessing what is in front of us and responding appropriately. You know, and I think we can only do that because if we're in heightened states of trauma, we're always reactive. Like that's what trauma does. It tethers us to an emotion. So, you know, as as much as I feel like my anger is um is valid. I know that in if I'm in a heightened state of anger, I'm, I'm probably very traumatized. If I'm very traumatized, my ability to think is impeded, and I'm also creating a lot of harm for my body. So that doesn't serve anybody. Um, you know. So again, even you know, I, I feel just cliche this morning, but you know, self care is an act of political resistance, right? So it's just like, how are we realizing that these things are synonymous? So I mean, it's a really, it's a really, um, it's a really challenging question. But I think that we have to focus on the things that are in our control, and I think really, you know, creating awareness, making sure that we're creating awareness in our communities, uh, in our spaces around the history and legacy of like oppression in this world, and we're synonymously doing the work that allows us to begin the healing process for ourselves and our communities. Um, I think another thing that's really critical in this, and it's maybe part of what we're doing right now, is is creating like really liberatory communities, right? Creating communities where we could again take everything that we're learning, and 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 really being community with each other to figure out like next steps. It has to be co-created. I think that is something. When I think about liberation, um, you know, Bell Hooks has this saying. She says, uh, uh, "Education has to be a field in which we all labor." And, and I think it's like it has to be right. Like liberation has to be a feeling which we all labor. So we all have to do the work that allows us to show up and, and labor. Yeah, that's great. And you you've been doing some of that work. Um, and I'll give you a chance to talk about um, one of these brave spaces that you've created, the the evolving justice space um, in New York as to perpetuate or to create this this new paradigm that that balances that tension of seeking liberation and reducing harm without creating harm or without yeah without creating more harm so what what is evolving justice what does this co-created liberatory space look like yeah so i mean it's it's really bell hooks has this saying where she says that you know we have to move from an ethos of domination to an ethos of love so I, I work under the umbrella of evolve, and if you look at even the first four letters of word evolve is to love, right? And I feel like to evolve we have to love, and to love we have to evolve. It's really it's really simple. It's not very complicated. And so for me, I I I, I really again truly believe our liberation is in community. And when we think about these systems of oppression, so much of it has been um, really factored around our divide. You know, our inability to see our mutual humanity. Um, so maybe before I even talk about evolving justice, I, I've, I've created a framework. And, you know, just from doing this work for a while, I created a framework, which I think is very pervasive uh, through um, evolving justice. And it, it starts with, um, I usually like preface it with like, who's the best rapper and, you know, like just have us, you know, like talk smack for a little bit. And then I'll introduce like B.I.G. 
And uh, the B really starts with bias. So really like bringing into conversation, like Paulo Freire, especially his work around pedagogy of the press. How do we know what we know? Understanding that we've all been, you know, products of like the banking system of education. So if we, if we all know that, then we all know that we have some levels of bias. So if, if we're able to all acknowledge that there's some degree of bias, then like we have to be clear of what's our intention, you know, and, and creating like, again, intentional space. And is our intentional to learn? Is our intentional to have our beliefs reaffirmed? You know, like, why, why are we here? Right. And, and everyone, I think, especially now where we see such a divide, everyone has to be very cognizant of that question. And, and I ask folks to kind of like create, you know, like, what's your North Star? What's your value system? And, I, and I, you know, like just really, you know, are we aligned with humanity or we're we aligned with self-interest? And if we're able to be clear with, you know, our, on recognizing bias, if we're able to be clear with what our intention is, then we can begin to build like ground rules of what it will be like to be in community. So even just, you know, like for us to then say, what what will allow me to feel like grounded in brave space, you know? I, I want to feel like, you know, there's an opportunity to call me in if I don't say something correctly. I want to feel like people are listening, you know, with the um, intent to hear versus respond. You know, so just like for us to, to, again, understand like basic community principles, even when we look at a lot of Aborigine practices, they were all like rooted in these things, right? So really creating basic community practices that allow us to then show up and, and to bring our expertise, to bring our experience, to then like co-create awareness and action in all our spaces. Yeah, I love that you phrase it as trying to create this this intent to hear as opposed to respond in this very, very community-centered movement. Beautiful turn of phrase um, and beautiful idea as as a practice. And I wanna I wanna end. I mean, this this conversation has been great, and I think you've given people who are teaching and engaging with the community a lot to think about and a lot to a lot to strive for. And I wanna end um, with the closing question that we do on this podcast. What what makes you hopeful today? Ah, I'm alive. <laughs> so, like, I mean, I'm I'm just gonna jack everybody today. But there, there's this really great um, bell hook speech, bell hooks James Baldwin, where he's like, you know, um, I'm alive, you know, and and by the fact that I'm alive, I have to be hopeful. And this hope isn't an academic discussion, right? Like the fact that I'm alive, I I, I have hope, and just really to understand that there's, I, I think for me, it's. It's really a recognition and an honoring of just how many people have sacrificed for us to even be here, you know, and, and that to me is very humbling um, to carry that, um, that torch, so to speak, that torch of hope is very humbling because as, as dark as this may feel, sometimes I know it's been implicitly darker. You know, I, I've, I've been blessed enough to go to um, Africa a few times. Um, I've been on, you know, in Ghana a few times to be at the door of no return and, and to just think about what that experience has been for people, to think about the transatlantic journey, to think about, you know, the first uh, winters and plantations and the brutality that took place there and the brutality that continues to take place today. And to know that this isn't just, you know, like an African experience, that most people of color have experienced um, great levels of brutality uh, throughout, you know, the the legacy and history of um, the quest for white supremacy. And to know that, you know, in in being alive today and, and to seeing the level of consciousness that is being raised around these issues. I mean, like, 
five years ago, we we couldn't even have this conversation without people like, you know, they're communists or like whatever, you know, or something, right? Like we would be labeled something. So I, I just, I, I feel incredibly blessed to be in a position to engage in these conversations and, and to see that these conversations are happening, not only, you know, like here, but almost throughout the world. And this feels like what Malcolm Gladwell calls tipping points, right? Like just when we continue to, you know, build satellites and these satellites can really like amplify the knowledge and vibration and we all just start to connect, you know, and, and I think that is such a critical part of like changing this, you know, just again, like sometimes it may feel like we need to act immediately. And I think sometimes we just really need to create like awareness, you know, so many of these things, I have students that will come to my class, students who lived in the hood, who've experienced all of these things and have no idea, can never, you know, like have no idea around like how aspects of mass incarceration are function, you know, like have no idea, like, you know, why their dad has been in prison for 20 years, right? So like someone who is so removed from this, of course, they're not going to have implicit knowledge around these things. I, I, I believe in power of word, you know, the power of narratives. I think you look at most um, most theories of liberation, they're always like predicated on um, storytelling, you know, the, the impacted people being able to share their stories. And I see that happening today, you know, at in, in more spaces than ever. So, I mean, that creates a tremendous amount of hope for me. Yeah, I, I love that answer. I mean, Robin Kelly, among others, have written so clearly about how studying, learning, building that awareness is itself of this radical act of protest. Um, and it starts, as you say, at these in these satellites, these grassroots local um, communities, and then hopefully creates this national, international, global movement to deconstruct racial supremacy. Absolutely. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you so much for being on today um, and for sharing sharing what you know. Yeah, no, thank you, man. And thank you for doing this work and, you know, like bringing it out to people and for everyone that's listening, you know, just continue to search, man. This is this is a time where we all have to ask the why, the why of our societies, but also the why of ourselves. Exactly. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Have a great day. <laughs>